Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. So let's jump into this. As you've turned to 1 Peter chapter 5, we've uh, spoken and we've seen throughout this letter the change in Peter's life. Uh, from the first week that we've done this, we are on our ninth service, number nine, our ninth message of this series called More Than a Letter. And as we've gone through these chapters and as we've gone through this letter to the church, We've, we've seen in every single week that there's a, a transformation that has happened in the life of Peter. Many of you could testify of a transformation that has happened in your life. From the first week that you came to the Lord to where you're at today. You have something that you could say, this is the work of the Lord and this is what God is doing. And we've seen this change in Peter's life. And I believe that as we've read through this, at least for me, as I've read through all these verses... It has really done a work in my life to see the growth in his life, to see the words, to see the maturity. And, and it's obvious that Peter, as he's changed, it hasn't been for the negative. It's been for the positive. It's been one of growth. Peter's life has been one of maturity, one of a deeper reverence, and it's obvious, a deeper reverence for the Lord, one whose life shows bouts of living for his own advancement, and as we read now, he's laid down his life for his beloved friend and for his savior, Jesus. When you, when you first learn of Peter in scripture, you see that there's a struggle within him. There's this young man who's zealous. There's this young man that wants to honor God. But there's a young man that's, that's also wrestling within himself. And he's wrestling because he wants to do well and he, he wants to... To, to, to form something well in his own life. Uh, but then we see later on in his years that something has just changed him forever. I wanted to share before we jump into 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, an encounter that many of us know. and It's found in John 18. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it. It's found in verses 25, 26, and 27. Let me give you a little context of what's happening here. Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. He's taken to the high priest. And he's in the courtyard of the high priest and Peter now finds himself alone with others and it's cold. It's a cold night and he gets around the fire. He's already denied Jesus about two times and he's going to be confronted one more time about who he was and who he is. And we find ourselves in verse 25 and I want you to see the heart of Peter. I want you to see his reaction. It says in verse 25, John 18, now Simon Peter stood and he warmed himself and therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Listen to that question. As Jesus is arrested, Peter is there in the courtyard of where Jesus is arrested. And the, the people that are there on the fire look at him and says, wait a minute. Aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of his? It says that he denied it and he said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, <laughs> said, did I not see you in the garden with him? I, I just love this because maybe it was his cousin. 
And he's like, you cut my cousin's ear. I know it was you. I'm thinking that if you are a witness of a harm that was done to one of your family members, you're going to remember the face of that person. And you're going to want to probably get even with that person. So when Peter is by the campfire, this man looks at him and says, wait a minute, you cut off my, my uncle, my cousin, whoever it was, his relative's ear. I, kn- I know it was you. You were in the garden. And it says in verse 27, Peter then denied again. And immediately the rooster crowed. As Jesus says, Peter, this is what's going to happen. I look at this passage and there's so much that we could learn from it. Because we could all say, how many of us have denied the Lord? And you're like, well, never me. I am bold and I I will preach him in the rooftops. It doesn't necessarily mean deny him the way Peter did just by saying, no, I'm not of Christ. It could be denying him by what you decide and how you decide to live. The decision you decided at that moment. That is denying Christ if it's against him. It doesn't have to always be like, no, I don't know Jesus. But it could be, at this moment, I'm going to do against what Jesus says. You are denying him at that moment of your life. So if I say, have, I, have any of you ever denied Jesus? I'm wondering how many of you would admit it and say, yeah, I, I definitely have I've denied him multiple times in my life. And here is Peter at a point of his life where he's not just denying him with like actions or making the wrong decision or whatever. He's just like upfront saying, I don't know him. I'm not of him. I'm not one of them. Leave me alone. And you read John chapter 18 as we've gone through 1 Peter and we're about to enter next week. Finally, amen, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. You read this and you could say, whoa, Peter has come a long way since this occasion. He's come a long way. Just just think about the Peter that is writing this letter. Here in John chapter 18, a young, zealous Peter, young in his age, is not willing and he's not ready to lay down his life, to lay it on the line. He's not ready and willing yet. Because if he was, when they said, are you one of them? He would have stood up and said, you better believe it, I'm one of them. And if you arrest him, you might as well arrest me. But that wasn't what Peter said. He said, no, I'm not one of them. And in in many translations and in, in many ways, you'll see that it wasn't just a no, not a definite no, but it was also a cursing no. It was a vulgar no. It was a, it was a censorship of no when he would answer no. It was something that came from despair of not being known that he was one of them for fear of his life. Peter was at a point where he was not ready to lay his life. And you know what? Every single one of you in honesty could say, so have I. I've been there where I have not what? Been willing to lay down my life. Anyone? And that's Peter. I'm not ready to lay down my life for him. How many of you is the Lord is truly calling you and truly asking you to surrender? Truly asking you to to pick up the cross and follow him? But there's this wrestle in you. You're like, ah, I don't know if I'm going to lay down my life or I'm going to put it on the line for him. But now we fast forward. It's almost like I love in the movies where you're in a scene, but they take you years before, maybe It's the main character of the movie. 
but they take you to a scene of his childhood because you have to see where he was or what happened that got him to the place where he was later on in his adult years. <clears throat> and I love this in scripture because now we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, and we rewind it to John 18 when he was younger. And we could see how Peter now, how he's become this man that God has called him to be. Where now he's laid down his life. He's laid down his life for the cause of Christ. This lifestyle of laying down his life for Jesus has won him. Listen to, listen to this. Has won him the heart and the honor of the early church. Maybe you're here like, how come, how come I can't win anyone? How come, how, come no one, how come no one really honors and respects? And, it, and it's maybe because you haven't laid down your life. It's almost like the husband that says, my wife doesn't respect me. Have you laid down your life? It's almost like the wanting leader that says, I just want people to follow. And I want to I lead people. It'll never happen if you can't lay down your life. That is the call. And that's what Peter learned later on in his years. So let's continue as we enter uh, this last chapter of this specific letter that is written to the early Christians, as we've learned in Asia Minor, which we know today is called Turkey. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Are we there? Give me an amen. All right, verse 1, it says, I'll read it to you. I'm going to pause in verse 1, and, and we'll go <clears throat> from here. It says this, And now... A word to you who are elders in the churches. Remember where we've been in the last eight weeks or the last eight preachings. Peter has touched up on a little bit of everything. And now as he closes off this letter, he's going to write specifically to a group of individuals. Look what he says. A word to you who are elders in the churches. I too, Peter's writing, am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you. And then he's going to, what are you going to appeal? Well, he's about to tell you in verse 2 what he wants to encourage them in, what he wants to tell them. So what do we find ourselves? First off, as we stop in verse 1. We know that Peter is qualified to speak. Have you ever been in a group and someone speaks or someone takes the charge and you're there and you're like, what are you doing? You know very well that no one in this group respects you. No? All right. Just making sure you're all there. And, and here's Peter and he's writing to the church. No one in the church is saying that. When they receive the letter from Peter, all their ears are attentive. Wait. There's a letter from Peter. Let's hear what he has to say. No one is saying, well, who does Peter think he is? Peter thinks he's kind of like our leader or something. Peter thinks that he's someone that we respect. Peter is, as he writes this, a qualified individual, qualified to speak, qualified to instruct, to teach. And he is also a fellow elder as he introduces himself here. And not only is he a fellow elder, but he says he's also one who has witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I, I love how Peter starts this because we know and we could consider that many saw Jesus suffer. 
When Jesus was on the cross, it was a very popular road where the traffic was very heavy. That is why the Roman crucifixion was done on that road. And the reason why they put him there was to show everyone, fear us, fear Rome. This is what we can do to you. Watch them suffer. So when Jesus was on the cross, naked and shameful, there were many who saw Jesus suffering. You know that, right? It just wasn't Mary and John and a few people at his feet. Many were walking by that journey, by that road, and watching these individuals suffer there on, on the cross, on the crucifixion, on the day that they would die. Many saw Jesus suffer, but it is obvious that it did not affect them the way that it affected Peter and others who saw Jesus die. Those people that saw him in faith, it affected them differently. I want to share a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I love this insight, uh, and I think this is one of the uh, a very powerful thing out of everything that I'm going to share today. Look what Spurgeon says. He says, there were thousands who were eyewitnesses of our Lord's sufferings, who nevertheless saw not the true meaning of them. They saw the great sufferer, but into his wounds they never looked by faith. Let me ask you a question. When we preach the word of God, when we teach of Jesus, do you what? What am I asking you? Do you look into that with faith? Do, do you sit here in faith? Do you worship in faith? When you see Christ, is it in faith? It says that they see him smeared with his own blood in his wounds, but they never looked by faith. It says thousands saw the Savior die, but they simply went their way back to Jerusalem, some of them beating on their breast, but none of them believing in him or really knowing the secret of that wondrous death. I think what Spurgeon says, he nails it on the head. And here's Peter in chapter 5 now, and he's been impacted not just by the life of Jesus, but he's been impacted by the sufferings of Christ. On the way over here, we had the radio on, and it was in the background, and I heard it. And they were giving an announcement of a, of a, a Muslim rally that went on, a Muslim raid. And they ran into a, a, a village, and they began to persecute and kill a bunch of Christians in this village. I forgot what town it was in, in the other part of the world. And it says that when one of these men uh, found out about it, he ran to go see his wife and his children. But on the road, they found him and they killed him. And now this woman is left as a widow and so on. And, so on. and I'm like, this just happened like 24 hours ago, maybe 48 hours ago. And we just got dressed in our homes and we put cologne on and we just came over here peacefully. And some of us came in here and it was a drag to even worship and it was a drag to even sit here right now. And it's like, and these people are like, I'm going to die for Jesus today maybe, most likely. That's probably what's going to happen to us. And we're like, I don't know if I want to die for him today. Think about, think about the difference here. I'm not saying that's all of us. I'm just using this as an analogy. Maybe it is all of us. Let's be honest. But these are individuals that, that, that this just happened, and this is what Spurgeon is saying, and this is what we read about Peter's letter. Peter was not just impacted by the life of Jesus. Yes, Jesus did great things, like what? Raise up a dead man like called Lazarus, make blind people see, feed thousands and thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Multiple times he does that miracle. I mean, Jesus does miracle after miracle, and he's impacted, yes, by those things, but what he tells the church is, I am also, I've been transformed, I've been changed, I've been touched by his sufferings. I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ. 
You have to remember that and, and really focus on that because Peter is making a point here, and that's what Spurgeon is talking about. So I say this to you, in all of his troubles, in all of Peter's difficulties, we read in his letters a much older Peter, older in his years, and we see an individual who is persevering. A man who is filled with perseverance. His sufferings, filled with sufferings, but yet as he's persevering in his sufferings, we see a man in this letter that is filled and is continuing to live in the joys of Christ. I want you to pause and think about that. Peter is persevering in sufferings, but yet is counting it all as joy. It's become joyful to his life. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ, but in it, with faith, he was able to enter the joys of the Lord. There's a truth here to be found, that in suffering through faith, there's encounters of joys in Christ. Very powerful, and that's what Peter is going through that's in the form in how he's writing this letter. When he's writing this letter to the church, he's not griping. He's not complaining. He's not telling them how sorry they are. You guys should live the way I live. He's not beating them over the head. He is what humbled and a broken man, spirit crying out to God. And he's writing from a place of suffering who has found great joy in the midst of it. And he's become a testimony. In the early church, and here we are thousands of years later, he's become a pillar to the church. And that's what he's doing through the work of Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit in him. And we see in chapter 5 that Peter has learned two things. I'm going to repeat this. Number one, he goes on to say that he is a partaker of the glory of Christ. And one day, he will reign with him in his coming kingdom. I want you to write this down in your notes. Because maybe five years from now, maybe five months from now, maybe five weeks from now, listen to this, maybe five hours from now. You have to go back to your notes and you need to remember this, that you are a partaker of the glory of Christ if you are in him. And one day you will reign with him in his coming kingdom. This kingdom is perishing, but his kingdom never fades away. And one day, mark my words, we will reign with our shepherd in his kingdom. And Peter understood that. Number two, not only am I a partaker of the glory of Christ and one day will reign with him in his coming kingdom. But number two, I am already partaking in the glory here on earth. And one day... I know I'm going to experience it to its fullness. I'm not just waiting for it. I'm also encountering the joys and the fullness and the, the riches of his glory here on earth. As we look at verse 1, Peter's humility shows in his writing. In, this, in his later years, we see that he could have done something that maybe some of us would have done. I don't know, maybe I would have done it. But listen to this. He presents himself, well, I'll ask you, what does he present himself as? An elder? But what kind of elder does he present himself as? Not just an elder, but a, a fellow elder. I, I want you to see the humility in Peter. He could have presented himself as one of high importance. 
He could have presented himself as some chief elder or something. I, Peter, write to you, the chief elder. It's like some people do. You know, they, they make him to be this man that Peter never was and never made himself to be. Peter never put himself on a throne and said, call me now the Pope and kiss my ring. That was never Peter's heart. Many will do that and will call Peter the first Pope. But you'll see that Peter's heart was not written in that way. It was I, a fellow elder. I want you to see the heart of this that sometimes we miss. He does not come with high importance or some, some way of saying that he's this chief elder. Instead, a fellow elder only. He, he now is giving a word, an exhortation to, to the church and to the elders of the church. In this group of Christians, among them, there were certain individuals who had specific responsibilities that Peter is going to address. And they were called elders. Everyone say elders. And you look at that word elders, and what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Maybe it's someone with gray hair. Maybe it's someone that's old. Maybe it's someone that can't walk as well anymore, someone that needs to be carried in. It's just an older person. That's what an elder may be to you. But we know that this idea of elder, it's not something that is new to the church as Peter is writing to them. It's not something that's new to Peter. He didn't just come up with it. Oh, I have a great idea for the church. Let's go ahead and what? Vote in some elders. Let's go ahead and ask some people to see who wants to sign up to be part of our elders board and see what individuals we could vote in to become elders. It wasn't his idea, and he wasn't thinking about, oh, this is a great idea. It was something that was not new to him. It comes from his culture. It comes from the Jewish culture. The word elder, if you remember, just giving you some examples so you can know a little bit of, of the story here of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, what does God tell Moses to do? He tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go and gather the elders of Israel and then bring them and tell them so forth and so on. Tell them everything that I'm about to tell you. So Moses, being the leader of Israel, is supposed to grab the other leaders, these elders who were leaders, so that he could give the plan and that they could distribute it to the others. But God tells Moses, call the elders. We also see it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Moses calls for all the elders, and he gives them instructions in this chapter of Exodus 12 of the Passover. Who does he call forth? Not all the people. He calls only the elders forward we see this numerous times so the word elder simply it speaks of maturity and wisdom that an older person should have yes making them qualified for leading or for leadership whenever an older person speaks to you or wants to give you advice what should you do listen why because they're more experienced than you don't think that you know it all you might be before greatness and you don't even know it They've gone through some things. They've failed in their lives. They, they could tell you some stories. They've, they, the race that you're running, they've ran it numerous times. And because of that, you might find wisdom there. That is why Proverbs says that gray hair on a man's head is a sign of wisdom because of their experience in life. You with me? Elders. But in this passage, in its application... It's more about wisdom and it's more about maturity than it is about a specific age. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we see Paul and Barnabas, as they are planting the churches all over, they appoint elders in these churches that they are, that they are planting. Uh, 
we see that all over Paul's ministry. So here's Peter, and why am I stressing elders? Because I want every single one of you to know that maybe you're not an elder here at Nest. But man, you might be an elder somewhere else. You may be someone in someone else's life that every word and every act of your life, it's on display for just that, if it's that one person to see. We'll get into this. So what is Peter doing? He's instructing this leadership, these appointed leaders, these people that we call elders. And here is what he says. Let's roll. He says, I appeal to you in verse 1. And look what he says in verse 2. Care for the flock. Everyone say shepherd the flock. Yeah. Care for the flock. Shepherd the flock. What flock? Peter says, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not what you'll get out of it or out of them, but because you're eager to serve God. Verse 3, don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your good example, by your good example. That phrase right there is going to be vital for today. But lead them by your good example. Today's message is titled, Lead Well. Lead well. As we look at verse 2 and 3, the first aspect of leadership. Peter is writing to the church, and the first aspect of leadership that we see is shepherd. And shepherd the flock. It's interesting that Peter would encourage leaders to do this. Out of all the things to say to these leaders, he says, care for them. Shepherd these people. Do this. And the reason why I say it's interesting, because in Peter's life, this is something that's been ingrained and commissioned to him by Jesus. In John chapter 21, verse 15, 16, and 17, my son loves to do this with me and Nancy. I have no idea what he's doing, but he's... Every day he does this to me. He's in the back of my car. He says, Dad, do you love me? And I'm like, just be quiet. No, no, Dad, seriously, do you love me? I'm like, Jax, you know I do. No, but Dad, do you love me? Jax, I know what you're doing. Dad, do you love me? Yes. You don't get it? It's a Bible story. And I'm like, but finish it. Finish the Bible story. Like, what do you? He just stops there. It's a Bible story. But he's like, yeah, but it means something. Like, finish the rest of it. He just learned that you have to ask three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then when, when, when I'm frustrated, he says, oh, you don't get it. It's a Bible story. <laughs> well, here's Peter, and that's the story. It says in chapter 21, verse 15 of the book of John. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And look what he tells Peter. He says to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, and he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? I I know what Peter feels because my son does this to me all the time. And he says, To the Lord, he says, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. So Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. 
You there? That's a young Peter. That's a young Peter. That's a young Peter that Jesus is saying, tend, care, feed, for feed my sheep. What is Peter telling the church now? He says, hey, care for the sheep. The sheep that God's entrusted you. Watch over it willingly. Not so that what you could get out of it, but because you're eager to, eager to serve him. Don't lord over them, but lead them by your good example. Who's speaking to me now? It's an older Peter saying to the church, I teach you what was first taught to me by Jesus. I love this because he says, shepherd the flock. You need to understand the culture. An ancient Israelite shepherd, for example, they would, go they would go before the sheep. And the reason why they would go before the sheep is to lead them. The shepherd would never drive the sheep in front of him. He would not walk behind the sheep. But a true shepherd during this time would go before the sheep so that the sheep could follow their chief shepherd. And what is Peter telling the church and the leaders in the church? Church leaders, you should lead the people of God in the same way. The way a shepherd does to the sheepfold. You should feed them and you should protect them and you should guide them. And you should always have their best interest in mind when you're serving them. Don't serve them with your best interest. You serve them always to feed them, to love them. You lay it down for them. I, I was thinking about yesterday, I think it was the Martinez. I think, yeah, it was us talking in the kids' room. And they're like, if an alligator comes and, and, and he bites your dog, I think there was a, a, some sort of thing that they saw on social media, and takes your dog, will you jump in and fight the alligator for your dog? Because a 60-year-old man did it. His dog got taken by the alligator, and he went in and started punching the alligator. I think he rescued it, right? Good for him. Would you do that? I said, oh, man. I mean, for sure for my family, I'll do it. But for my dog, I'll probably be like, fig. But then I'm like, I don't know. I probably would. I love fig. Think about that. Because in the sheepfold, sometimes wolves come. Sometimes the enemies come. Sometimes all these outsiders come to try to get into the sheepfold to eat them and to destroy them. And they're so vulnerable. And they're so weak. And they're not that smart. I'm not saying you guys. I'm talking about the sheepfold over here. And they need a shepherd to make sure to protect them, to guide them. To feed them, and if it means anything, to lay down their life. David was a shepherd. Did you hear me? David was a shepherd. And he had to fight Goliath one day. And how many times have we said that here? But he had private battles defending the sheep. And with his very own hands, he fought lions. He fought bears. Why? How did he win such fame? Because he laid down his life for the sheep. So God entrusted, if he could do that for them, he'll lay down his life for a nation. He'll do it for these people that I love. If you're called to lead in any capacity and you can't lay down your life, please do not enter into any kind of leadership. Because leadership is to what? Lay down your life, not with your best interest in mind, but for the interest of those that you are walking, standing before, so that they could follow you in your footsteps. 
If you say to them, how many times have we said that here, come and follow me, where would you lead them? Amen. I'm just telling you what Peter's telling the church. And that's what he's saying. Come on, do it well. If you're a Christian, you should remember also that you've been given responsibility and a responsibility to tend the flock. Not that belongs to you. Never does it belong to you. But he's saying what God's given you, it always belongs to me. All of it belongs to God. How many of you could say amen? And he says, serve as overseers. He says, watch over it willingly. As leaders, we do everything in our power to ensure that Christians living under our care, that they're doing their best to live according to the word of God, that we hold them accountable, that we teach the word of God. And then he says, and we never lead by compulsion, not grudgingly, not to see what we can get. The work of ministry is always to be done joyfully, not as a mere duty. Oh, I got to do this. No, I get to do this. It should be a joyful surrender to the Lord when we serve him. It shouldn't be a frustrating act. Oh, I wish I didn't have to go today and see those people. If you're, if you're saying that you're sick in the heart, you're sick. Because you don't like the very people that you're called to live before. Christian leaders, we make certain that our work is not motivated ever, never write this down. It does not have to only do in ministry, but in everything. Your work is never motivated by money. Never. How many of us get a job just because, oh, more money, I'll, get, I'll go for it. And then you go for it, like, oh my God, what did I just get myself into? My life is horrible. I'm losing my family. My kids never seem just because I went for more money. Think about it. Money is not always the answer. So we don't serve and we don't work motivated by money, but by a passion for the good of those believers that we have been put in charge of. That's why we serve, because there's a people that God has called me to serve before. Amen. And we don't lord over, he says. He reminds all of us that we need to perform the role of servants, not masters, to the ones that God has given us. Peter is teaching what God, what Christ has taught him first. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45, what does Jesus tell Peter and the disciples? He calls them over to him. And look what he tells Peter. Look what he tells James. Look what he tells John. Look what he tells the other nine. He says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles dominate them. And they're men of high position. They exercise power. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. A ransom for many. Amen? I'll never forget when I was a youth pastor, I went to go meet up with another pastor. Nothing big, nothing famous, didn't have his own television show. Hasn't written his first book yet. Just a known person in Miami. And I'll never forget, the service ended. And I just thought, well, I could just walk up to this person. So I just walked up. And when I walked up, a much bigger man than me got in front of me, and he had a little wire in his ear. 
And he says, what are you doing? I'm like, I just have a meeting today with Pastor so-and-so. He's like, you need to wait right here. And I said, okay. And I couldn't get next to him until it was granted permission to get around him. And I just remembered and I said, well, what kind of access is that to the sheep? If I can't touch this man, if I, can, if I have to go through five sets of individuals just to go and say, hey, I'm here for the meeting. <laughs> well, what kind of access? Sometimes we, we make it about ourselves. Sometimes we forget what Jesus taught the disciples, what these apostles are teaching us. Hey, don't govern and don't dominate and don't act and don't exercise power over so many individuals. On the contrary, if you want to be great, man, just be a servant to everyone that you serve. Be a slave to everyone. Lay down your life. Come on, you can say amen to that. Because some of you, maybe you're like, well, I don't know. I'm never going to preach. I'm never going to lead. I'm not going to be a, a pastor at any time. No, but guess what? You have children that you are leading and you're pastoring. You are a shepherd of your house. You are a shepherd of your marriage. You are a shepherd at your job. You are a shepherd in your community. Don't justify and give excuses and say, well, that's just for you pastors. That's just for elders in the church. No, that's for the church of elders that you are elders and leaders in this world. And we are called to lead and lead well. Amen? Be an example. And he says, lead them by just that. You lead by good example. As leaders, and every single one of you is called to be a Christian leader, you should be a godly model to other believers. Christ himself set that example for all of us. Well, I could never be an example for others. Then you're wrong. Your doctrine's wrong. Your theology's wrong. The way you live for Christ is wrong. The way you view Christ is wrong. If you say you can't be an example for others, your relationship with Christ, there's something that's wrong there. Jesus says this in John 13, 15. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. What is Jesus telling his followers? Do as I've done for you. To who? To the others that will follow you. So as I've done for you, now you do this to others. So you too lead by good example. All of us in this room, if you could hear anything, listen to this. You're called to lead well with good example. Paul tells the churches, just in case you thought that this was just about Jesus. It's not. Look what Paul says. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, the church of Philippi, Brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. <laughs> We've patterned our lives in a way that you could follow it, is what Paul is saying. He says to the church of Thessalonica in chapter Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9, not because we do not have authority, Paul says, because we have authority, don't get me wrong, but look what he says, but to make ourselves instead an example of how you should follow us. Paul's like, I've laid down my life. I've worked when I was among you. I worked hard so that I didn't just live off you. I, I did everything I had to do to serve you well. Not to exercise authority, but to set an example for how, how you should live. Man, I thank God for these godly men. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. But they led well in their imperfections. Remember, Peter ends verse 3 by saying, lead by your good example. In verse 4, look what he says. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Every single one of us, something should bubble up inside of you. Your heart should pound a little different right now. When I say that one day your great shepherd will appear. And when your great shepherd appears, 
you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. I read verse 4, and what Peter is telling these leaders in the church, and he's basically telling them, it's our responsibility to lead well. And you're to lead by good example. But it's our good shepherd's responsibility to distribute rewards. What Peter is telling the church here, it's this. We don't lead to receive rewards. We live and we lead to set a good example. That's our reward on earth. So if we have a heart to say, well, I'm, I, I want to be recognized and I want to be seen and I want to be acknowledged and I, wa- and I want a platform. I want my, my boss to recognize me and I want this person to. And it's good to recognize someone. It's good to honor people. Don't get me wrong. All those things are good. But if your heart is motivated by those things, you're just going to be crushed. What should be pushing you forward is I do everything that I do is for this one purpose. It's for the glory of the Lord. It is all that I can lead well and set an example for others to follow. Whether I get recognition or not, may he get all the glory. If someone else takes it and it was really mine, you know what? The Lord's in control. Let them have it. I don't have to show anyone that it was really me who did it. You guys want to know who did all this? I'm not going to tell you. The Lord knows who did all this. The Lord knows who was here every single day. The Lord knows who had to sacrifice. Like, like it's okay when you serve the Lord and you serve him well. You do it for one main purpose. And it's, man, that others would see and follow and that it would all give glory to the Lord. We don't lead to receive rewards. But for good examples, we continue to repeat. And don't ever forget our reward, though sometimes we long for it here in eternity, Our reward is always in heaven. Our reward is in eternity. Peter says this, when the great shepherd appears, you, right there, you, say me, I'm going to receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. And all I could say when I read verse 4 is amen. We will answer one day, every single one of us, to our chief shepherd. And we will, he will come before us and we will, he will want to know what we did and what did you do with those that I put you in charge of. How many of you lead someone in your life? Any of you? Any of you lead someone? Maybe it's a, a family member, a child. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's here in church. How many of you lead? And you're called to lead. One day, You'll stand before the chief shepherd and he's going to want to know, what did you do with those that I've put in your care? Did you lead well? Was it honorable? Was it with a good heart? Here's your crown of glory and honor. As a pastor, I read these passages and I realize this, that I don't lead my sheep. I lead his sheep. He is the shepherd He is the overseer, as scripture says. He's the overseer of our souls. None of us in here, no man can ever say that he's the overseer of your soul. If they do, you run far from that man. Okay? They probably are starting a cult. He is the overseer of our soul. He is the shepherd. And as earthly Christian shepherds, ultimately, I know I work and we work for one main purpose, and that is for the chief shepherd. And you are shepherds. Every single one of you are shepherds. 
like we've said already, whether it's family, community, marriage, whatever it is, you are shepherds and you will receive a crown of glory. Faithful shepherds are promised a crown of glory, but not like the crown that the Olympic Games, we see that the, the old Olympic Games, it was one of leaves that were given in these ancient games. The crown that we will wear never fades away. Today I was getting ready and it was about an old wrestling Olympic wrestler who gave up all his medals and he gave up all his Olympic rings. Everything faded away because of the track of his life, because where he was headed. But our crown and our reward never fades away. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says this, And everyone who competes for the prize, he's temperate, self-controlled in all things. If you're competing for the prize of the upward call, your life is temperate. Your life is self-controlled in this world. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. These other individuals that are running around without, without self-control, they, they run around with, with tempers, they run around and they're aiming at things that, that just fade away. But us, we do it for the imperishable crown is what he's saying. Let's keep reading in verse 5, 6, and 7. He says, in the same way, Peter says, as I just told you in verse 4, how you're to lead and lead well. He says, in the same way, he says, you who are younger, you must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you, you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen. So you humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he's going to lift you up in honor. Verse 7, give all your worries. How many of you worry? How many of you have anxieties? How many of you sometimes are drowning in that? Come on, we can all testify that. He says, well, give all those worries. Give all those cares to God. Why should I do that? For he, the good shepherd, he cares for you. Younger ones. This has, this has to do with age when you read it. But when I read this, it not only has to do with age, it has everything to do with other things than just age. It, it may have nothing to do with age as well. Because maybe, maybe I'm, I'm younger than you, but maybe I've been in the Lord longer than you. Think about what these verses can mean. But you don't have to act like you know it all. And, that at the end of the day, you can respect and honor and accept the authority of those over you. That you could say, I could learn from someone. I could build on something. I love, um, I, I love this pastor who, who the Lord has humbled him and broken him. And he didn't go run into a cave. He opened himself up as an open book and says, I failed. He lost his whole ministry. I, I, he lost, it was the fastest growing church in America. He lost it all. And he went under another man's leadership. And he stayed there for a few years. And the Lord restored him. And today he has a church in Phoenix. And God is doing something mighty in this man. I love him. And years ago I learned something from him. He says, I don't look at myself as one kind of Christian only. Whether it's Baptist or Pentecostal, Reformed or whatever. He says, what I've learned is I grab bricks from different men, different leaders, different people that I could learn from. And I've learned to build my house from all of those that I could receive from. And I said, that's wisdom. A man who doesn't act, have to act like he knows it all, but could learn from, from everyone and anyone who has been on this journey. He says, Peter says, now you dress yourselves. And hopefully in this church, we all like to dress ourselves. But if you're going to dress yourself like anything, you dress yourself with humility. Humility is very important in leadership. Because humility, it's demonstrated, it can be seen by submission. 
How can you show your greatest act of being humble? By truly learning how to submit. That is true humility. And what I mean by that is this. We put away our agenda and we serve God's. God's will. God's agenda. In my life, it's been difficult to to not serve for my agenda. And I've had to battle and I've had to fight and say, this is not about my agenda. This is about his agenda. This phrase, to dress yourself in humility, it's referring to when a slave, they would put on an apron before serving. And if you remember Jesus, Jesus did the same right before serving and washing his disciples' feet. The master becomes the slave to serve them well. So I say this to you again. If you're filled with pride, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Dress yourself in humility. If you're here, you say, oh, I'm good. I'm definitely humble. That's a sign that you're not humble. (laughs) You give it away. You're not humble. Every single one of us could admit, I need more humility in my life. I need more humility in my life. So what, how can I work with my humility? Work on your submission. Because if you work on your submission, humility grows. What is Peter doing? God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. That if you want to live in God's grace, then you must lay aside your pride and be humble, not only to him, but to every single person, to one another. If someone's name comes up and you get angry and your heart gets bitter, you're not humble. You are so filled with ego and pride. What am I trying to say? We're humble people and we dress ourselves with humility. Amen? And he says, don't give yourself over to worry and anxiety. He says, the Lord is going to exalt you in his proper time. Worry, the English standard says this in its commentary. Worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. Well, guess what? I've deal with pride <laughs> because I've worried for things that I know without a certain, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord says, I am in control and you worry for the things that you have no control of. Why? Because of my own issues, of my own heart. What do we do? We give it to God. Why do I give all this worry and anxiety to God? Why do I have to do this? Because I need to lead well. And I need to know that at the end of it all, he cares about me. He cares about you. Amen? As we come to the end here and we're on our last lap and we close up in a, in a minute or so, a few minutes. Here's how Peter's going to end this little section of teaching us how to lead well. Look what he says. Because it's not just about you. It's not just about your anxiety. It's not just about your worrisome. It's not just about leading from a wrong heart. But there's also this factor that plays in it. Verse 8, you stay alert and you watch out for your great enemy. I said a couple weeks ago, sometimes you get in the ring and you're fighting and the next thing you know, you think you're going to fight that devil. But the one that you're actually fighting, your greatest enemy is you. You fight yourself. But Peter now is going to introduce the devil himself. And he says, stay alert, watch out for the great enemy, the devil He prowls around like a roaring lion and he's looking for someone to devour. Verse 9, you stand firm against this enemy and you be strong in your faith 
and remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. What is Peter telling? It's the same thing I told the sister in our church this week. He says, hey, you're not alone. There's another group of individuals. We're all here together. We got this together. If you suffer, we suffer together. If you succeed, we succeed together. If there's one thing that we're called to do is stay alert. Watch out. There's an enemy that will rise up. But what do we do? What do we do when he comes up, when he rises up, when he stands before us? You stand firm against him. You fight forward against him. And you remain strong in your faith. If the enemy comes against you and you get weak in your faith, man, you've discipled yourself wrong. But when the enemy comes against you, you stay strong in your faith and you say, you're coming? Let's go. And you fight him right back. Jesus was tempted and he was taken to the wilderness. And every time that the devil tried to spin the word of God on him, he what? spoke the truth of the word of God back to the enemy to tell him, if you want to fight, we'll fight well. I'm not going to back down. I'm going to stand strong in the faith and I'm going to come right in with truth. Jesus never retreated. He never backed down. And if he is alive in me, all I could pray and hope for is that I will never retreat. And I will never back down. If he wants a fight, a fight is what he'll get. And I know the word of God. At the end, I win. I win. Because Jesus has won. He says, stay alert and watch. Stand firm. Be strong in your faith. And remember, you're not alone. You have a family of believers. And they're all going through the same things. Similar things. They're also suffering. He tells them to stay alert. I want you to write this down in your notes. To stay alert means keep your mind sober. Self-disciplined. The reason why you got to focus on your mind and work on your mind and exercise your mind. I'm telling every single one of us because I'm preaching to myself. I have my own way of doing it. Because if I get deep in my mind, I'm telling you, you won't hear from me. I'm telling you, man, I'll get gloomy. I'm telling you, me and my wife will be fighting left and right. My children will look at me and say he's a horrible father because I know what it is to get deep into my mind. So what is Peter saying? Because he knows that, he says, you need to control your mind. You need to strengthen your mind. Why do I need to stay alert? Why do I need to be sober-minded? So that you don't think foolishly, Regal. So you could think with wisdom, rationally, with understanding. You have an enemy Church, listen to this as we close off. You have an enemy, and the enemy wants to attack, and the enemy will attack. And many can testify, hey, the enemy has attacked in my life. That was the question that I was going to ask you. Has the enemy ever attacked you in your life? Think about that for a moment. How many of you could come up here right now, grab the mic and say, but I have a story how I've conquered the attack of the enemy. You see, my marriage was going to be destroyed, but here we are, we're still married because the enemy did not win. My child, they said he didn't have a chance, but here's my child. He's still here. Why? Because the enemy did not win. They said that I, think about all the stories where the enemy has come to destroy your identity maybe. And your identity is now established in Christ. Why? The enemy did not win. We have stories to tell. He will attack us if he has not yet. And he will continue to be hostile toward us. And yes, he will consistently accuse us before God. He is the accuser of the brethren. He will stand before the presence of God, the enemy, and he will accuse us day in and day out consistently. He is cunning. He is slick. He knows how to do it. He is cruel. 
Oh, why is life so hard? Because your enemy is hard. He's cruel and he's cunning and he's slick. It's when you least expect it. You open that door a little bit and next thing you know, he bombards your house. You say, how did I get here? Because you gave him a little bit to play with and that's all that he needed. Come on, you're called to lead well. So what do you do? You shut the door, you stand firm, and you fight against the enemy's cunning plans. His schemes, his fiery darts. You go and you come against it. He will attack And he will attack when you don't expect. And he attacks not just to harm you. But I want to make sure that you hear this here. The enemy attacks to destroy you. And when it comes and when he comes, you stand firm against him. You're strong and you stay strong in your faith. Please listen to this nest. Don't you ever run. Because you're never called to run. If you're called to flee, you flee from temptation. But from the enemy's fight, you don't run. You, ne- you never are called to resist. You don't, you don't just give up to him. I'm here to tell every single one of you the same way David in the secret place fought lions and bears with his own hands. I tell you that you're called to fight. You're not called to flee. The English standard says victory comes when we remain committed to God because he is greater than our enemy. You stay committed because the enemy has already lost. Keep fighting the good fight. How many of you could say amen? Amen. Keep fighting. Lead well. I need to keep fighting. I need to to keep fighting for my marriage. Why? Because I need to lead well for my children. I need to keep fighting for you guys. Why? Because I got to lead well for the next one, for the next person. That's the truth. I have men, women that I look up to in my life. They're older. Some of them are at the brink. Some of them have passed. But I have spiritual men and women that I look up to. And it's scary because I listen to them. I go back. I listen to their preachings. Sometimes I get to meet up with them or we want to blue moon. And these are men that have been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. They've given their whole lives to this stuff. For the sake of the gospel, men that have suffered. And I see them getting older. And they're almost at that brink, you know, they're they're about to pass on to eternity to receive their crown of glory. And it saddens because, you know, you don't want them to leave, you know, stay forever. We need those guys. We need those pillars here. But as they go, my mentality is, well, God's calling the next pillars to rise up so that I could be them one day. And one day I could look at this generation and say, I've done it and you could do it. You could keep going. It's, it's a discipleship. It, it's a continuing. It's a link that goes on from one to another. Jesus passed it on to his disciples. These apostles are passing it on to their students, their disciples. And I'm telling you, because of that chain of discipleship has happened, it's been over 2,000 years, and here we are still preaching the same gospel, worshiping the same God. Why? Why? Because it doesn't fade. It doesn't fade away. Our reward, our crown, eternity, it remains forever. And that has been seared in the souls of every single one of us. And it's going to be passed on to the next generation. So what do you do? You lead well. When do you start leading well? Right 
now you lead well. You are consistent. You persevere. You stand firm. When the enemy comes, you fight him and you fight him well. And as you fight him, you know that you're not alone. If no one's ever told you this, I want you to know this. I got your back. I hope someone in this church could look at you and say, I got your back. And I hope that you could look at someone in this church and say, I got your back too. I hope every single one of you has a believer that says, I know that when push comes to shove, that man, that woman, they're ready to cry with me. We're not alone. Come on, lead well. He says this in verse 10. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Jesus Christ. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. I love verse 10 because God is going to give us the ability to succeed in all that we do for him. Verse 11, all power to him forever. Amen. For the ages. All power to him forever. God is in control. That's what he's saying there. When is God in control? Now. And when else? And forever. Tomorrow. God is in control now and for all eternity. His control never ceases to exist. All power to him forever and amen. So be it. Skip a few verses for the sake of time. And then he closes off in verse 14. And this is what he ends with as he's writing to the church to lead well. He says, greet each other. And you greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all who are in Christ. You greet one another with a kiss of love. And Peter ends here with a, a command to greet and display God's love to one another. And it's by pronouncing and offering this blessing of peace. I want you to see what Peter ends here. He ends with peace and he ends with love. These, these two things, love, love for each other and peace are especially necessary for every single one of the us, the, for the believers. If there is not love and there is not peace at any moment, there's going to be destruction in our relationship. So what are we called to be? Come on, church. We lead well. And we're called to be showered in love. And we're called to be filled with peace so that this organism can continue to function, continue to move forward, and continue to lead well for the growth and the strength of the organism for the ages to come. Lead well. How many of you could say amen? Lead well. Leave a good example and lead well. Lead well. Can you stand with me on this morning, this beautiful morning that the Lord has given us? Lord, I've said so much today and I pray, Lord, that in everything that I've said that you have spoken through me and spoken to the heart so of your people, I pray, Lord God, if it's one verse, one phrase, but that, Lord, that you have done a mighty work, that you brought a correction, that you brought a growth, that you did something special in every single one of our lives. I pray if there's pride, that you would humble. I pray if there's worry and anxiety, 
that we would cast those cares upon you because you care. You fight for us. Lord, if there's an enemy and if there's trouble rising up, I pray that we would stand firm, that we would not waver, that we would not quit, that we would not run away, but that we would be rooted in your word and that we would fight back with honor, with dignity, having faith that you are alive in us. Lord, I find myself to be very similar to Peter. He showed bouts of very, of very strong immaturity. Many times he would say things that he shouldn't have said. Many times he did things that he shouldn't have done. I could relate a lot to Peter. Many times Peter dropped the ball. Many are the times where Peter shows his imperfection in scripture. But Lord, I'm honored to have a brother like Peter in this scripture because we see the work of Christ alive in him. In his later years, in his writings, we see he's become wiser. A man who's not ready to lay down his life to now an older gentleman who's laid down his life for the Lord who has suffered so much, who has entered so much persecution, who soon, from this point of his writing, very soon, he will be arrested and he will be walked towards his crucifixion. And as we've learned here, and many historians have written, and some historians have written, he sees his cross and he begins to sing and he begins to rejoice of how long he awaited the cross, the same death that his Savior, the same cross that his Savior would die on. But now he's a humble Peter, a man whose life has been laid down for Jesus, who says, don't just crucify me the way my Savior died. I'm not worthy. But you crucify me upside down. Here's a man that wrote these letters, a man who lived a life, a man that we don't worship, that we don't pray to, that we don't put flowers before, that we don't sing songs to. But he's a man just like many of us that didn't have it all together, that showed many problems and Many openings of, hmm, wonder where Peter's going to end up at. A lot of questioning on his life. So then later on in his years to see a man who has not let go of the baton. A man who continues to lead well in difficulty. A man who continues to preach the gospel. A man who continues to be a pillar <coughs> for everyone that will follow him. So, Lord, if I could pray anything today, I pray that we could all pray this together, Lord. Lord, that the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ, your work in me, that you would make me a man like this. Like Paul. Like Peter. I think about men in my life. I think about the Davids in my life, the Toms in my life. 
I see them as they're getting old. And all I could say is, Lord, I want to be like that. That I'm in this till I'm old. And I'm in this with wisdom till I'm old. And that I would lay down my life with whatever it takes. And that in my older years, I would be a testimony to those that are younger. And that they could say, if he's done it, then I know Christ can do it in me too. So Lord, help me, I pray privately here in public before my family. Help me, help him, help her, help us. Help us to lead well, to live well, to have honor, respect, dignity. The world and the rewards are perishing, but our crown never fades. Our reward in eternity lives for the ages to come. I thank you for such a beautiful morning. Can you join me as we pray for, for this week? Lord, we pray and we anoint this church, the rooms, the teachers, every volunteer, every child that's going to be here. We pray that this VBS would be jaw-dropping, that it wouldn't just be fun, entertaining, but that it would be spirit-led. Lord, I pray that kids would be broken. I pray that kids would be in tears because they would sense such a move of the Spirit in their lives. I pray that you would do such a mighty work through this VBS and that every volunteer would be sensitive to that move and to that voice and that we would minister and lead well before our children. For those that you've put in our care, let this be a wonderful VBS and let the kids, let them grow and let them never forget this week that's ahead of them. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done, for all that you're doing. We're humbled before your presence. It's in Jesus' name. And together we say, amen. Come on, can you give God some praise? He's worthy. He's worthy. I would love you guys to do this. Watch this before you go. Before you go. Before you go. for all of you to do this greet each other with a kiss of love <laughs> peace be with all of you who are in Christ can you do that and mean it and honor the Lord in that amen peace and love go in that for all of you guys that are sticking around to help out with VBS thank you for sticking around stick around we'll get started soon can't wait for tomorrow 6 o'clock we're going to have an awesome time. God bless you. Remember, you are loved. Come on, give each other a brotherly kiss. Love you all.